You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. You know, there are many things, many things that women are better at than men, but taking care of our health is not necessarily one of them. A new study from ZocDoc, it shows that when we're sick, about two-thirds of us would rather wait it out than make a doctor's appointment, and only half of men say the same. We're also more likely than men to put off preventative care. Sometimes this is for financial reasons, but sometimes it's because we just don't want to go. So it helps to have a doctor that you like. It helps to have a doctor that you can really talk to. It helps to have a doctor where you feel like you should just go out to lunch after you've had their appointment and they should scratch the rest of their day. And since so many of you are not talking to your own doctors, I thought that maybe you'd like to talk to one of mine. So I have invited my OBGYN and my friend, Dr. Rebecca Brightman, into the studio to have this important conversation. Hey, Becky. Hi, how are you? That's so kind of you. Well, it's so, <laughs> so happy it, to be here. It's so nice to see you. I, um, I mean, I should tell everybody, Becky delivered both my kids. So I have known her for... I guess times. 25 years, 26 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a really, really long time. And I feel like there's never been a more important time to be talking about our health. I absolutely agree. There's so many issues that are, you know, the tops of everybody's mind. As a woman, have you noticed more people talking in your practice? And, and I you know, granted, you have a, a practice on, on the east side of Manhattan, which is an affluent clientele. But have you noticed the conversation revolving more around money than it used to? More than ever, you know, particularly amongst my patients, but also the people I, you know, hang out with socially, too, regardless of their socioeconomic status. It really is on everybody's mind. I think, you know, so many people spend so much money on health insurance, yet they feel feel that they're getting very little in return. So regardless, everybody... It crosses, you know, so many lines. I think it's a really hot topic. So how do you, when you're talking to your friends, because maybe it, it's more applicable there, how do you advise them to keep themselves healthy, keep their costs reasonable, and and get the information from their doctors that they need? I think, like, the most important thing is really the quality of the health care they receive. And obviously, there will be limits depending on you know, the economics of the whole situation. I think as you hit on it from the start, I think it's great to have a wonderful relationship with your healthcare provider. It's really hard these days. I think for so many people, they have these drive-through appointments, Mm -hmm. appointments where they're really limited and the amount of time they actually spend with their physician is so limited. And honestly, they're spending a lot of time with the ancillary staff in the office who are taking vitals. Perhaps patients come in and have to fulfill, you know, fill out a questionnaire. So they're really not getting a lot of face-to-face time with their healthcare providers. So I think what women need to do to get the most out of their care is to really prioritize their health, really be organized, to know what is really expected or what they should anticipate taking care of and addressing at various stages in their lives. One big part of the 
equation, I think, for women and the financial equation for women is all the screening that has to be done, particularly as we get older. Are there what are your benchmarks for getting screened? What do we have to do, and when do we have to do it? So it's a great question, and obviously the screening tests are sort of ramped up as we age and everything. But starting in one's teen years, because I do see teenagers, I love my teenage patients. Birth control is important. You know, screening certainly for STDs. You know, when when that's a situation when that's you know when someone's at risk for STDs. Obviously, talking about pregnancy, pregnancy prevention. But in terms of screening tests, it's really STD screening. But also, when someone comes into my office, we talk about their weight, their BMI, mm-hmm. um, blood pressure. You know, really taking a full medical history, a family history, to see whether or not they're at risk for certain things. For example, let's say someone has a history of skin cancer and relatives at an early age. I mean. These women would need to start earlier screening. But so really the history of the screening is age-dependent. You know, um, for women in their 20s, obviously we start doing pap smears at 21. And again, screening for STDs, talking about pregnancy prevention and or planning. And that's true in one's 30s. Again, family history is important because there's certain screening tests we do when women are older. And it seems like there are more of those tests every day. So I went, as I do every year, I was this week was my week to go and see a doctor for a pelvic ultrasound. And I do that once a year, but they look at all of my other internal organs because my mom had a scare a few years back with her pancreas. I remember you told pancreas. me that. Sure, sure. And this other doctor, Dr. Sean Holtz, sat down with me and We talked for a half hour about family history and why she wants my mother to come in and get genetic testing because it's now an issue in men. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess where I'm going with this question, because what I learned in this conversation with her is that the world is expanding at a really rapid clip. There's so many more things we can test for. Some of them we can just order a 23andMe kit and spit. And <laughs> It's true. And I kind of wonder when is it worth it and when is it not? Well, I think a lot of people, first of all, do 23andMe for fun. Yeah. You know, to find out, okay, you know, I have a little Italian, a little you know, Swedish in me. But, but the truth is I think that in terms of cancer screening, I would I – would, be properly screened by a genetic counselor and have appropriate testing done. But I think it's really important. And that's why I was, even when I speak to my younger patients, as well as my patients in the 50s and 60s, it's really important to know family history because now there's certain things that we can do and identify and we can ramp up the screening, not only because of somebody's age, but also based on somebody's family history. So when you are, let's say you're a daughter, because our listeners are primarily daughters, and you haven't had these conversations with your own parents about their parents and their aunts and uncles. What information do we all need to bring with us to our appointments? So these are these are great questions. I think family history is so important, particularly when available. But the questions I always ask my patients, I want to know about a family history of breast cancer on both sides of the family. I think there's a big misconception that the father's side of the family doesn't count. It absolutely counts. So go going back as many generations as you can, you know, two, three generations, any family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer is very important, melanoma is important as well. And of course, I want to know about diabetes, high blood pressure, and things like that. 
But the cancer history is really, really important. And by the same token, the absence of a family history in patients who, for example, are adopted Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that there isn't a family history. You know, for those women, I can't be dismissive. I have to assume that there may be a family history and I have to be as proactive in terms of managing these women as I would for women who, you know, who had a positive history. So essentially you're saying it's important. You're almost more aggressive with people who don't know their family history? I am in my practice. And then again, you know, you mentioned I have a different type of practice, but I absolutely am. If I don't know someone's family history or their family history is not available, I absolutely have them go for all of the screening, you know, that I would send someone for if they had a family history of certain known cancers. Um, Let's talk specifically about mammograms for a second, because I know there are different guidelines on how often we need them. They're expensive, even if they're in your plan. The co-pays and the co-insurance can get expensive. So how do you how do you decide? Is it every year? Is it every other year? So I really try to obviously keep cost in mind for my patients. And if that means certainly going within their, you know, health network, we want to do that, making sure they have adequate, you know, and appropriate good quality care. But the guidelines that I follow are more in lines with the way I was trained, the studies I've read. I take family history into consideration. And there are different recommendations, whether or not you're following the American Cancer Society, United States Preventive Service Task Force. Um, What I routinely do in my practice is annually after 40, I do send my patients for baseline at 35, which I know many healthcare providers do not do. But I can't tell you the number of early cancers we've detected in our practice by sending women at 35. Depending on their ethnic background, depending on their family history, I frequently break up the five years between 35 and 40, again, just based on my 28 years of being in private practice, I've seen women with early breast cancers. And so I'll send them. And then, of course, annually after 40. The other thing I think that's really important for women to know is that ultrasounds, breast ultrasounds, are not done instead of mammograms, but they are a very helpful adjunct. And it is adopted to New York state law and Several other states have adopted this into their recommendations, and it's unfortunate that it's not uniform across our country yet at present. But if someone is found to have dense breasts on mammogram, Mm -hmm. it's recommended that they have a screening ultrasound. And that's really important because so many of my patients have been diagnosed based on ultrasound findings. And so if if they have dense breasts—I can't even say dense breasts, (laughs) but if they have dense breasts, then it'll be covered? Is that what this— It should be, yes, yes. Yes. And when do you need an MRI? My my cousin had breast cancer and it didn't show up on the mammogram and it didn't show up on the sonogram and it she knew she had it cuz something looked awful, but it showed up on the MRI. So, I, that's a great question. If someone is, has newly diagnosed breast cancer, routinely an MRI is being done to make sure there aren't any other breast cancers. MRIs are being used in um women with who meet high-risk criteria in general. The other thing is if a woman has a palpable lump that is not seen on mammogram or ultrasound, then an MRI would be appropriate. But the jury's still out in terms of the use of MRIs as routine screening for women at high risk. Um, So many women, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, so many women feel like they go into their doctor's office, it's, let's go through this checklist, and I'll see you in a year. It's because true. I only have seven minutes. Right, right. So how do you deal with that as a patient? 
I think it's really hard. And medicine, as you as we discussed, is really, really changing. I think women need to be empowered. I think it's really important for them in their mind to go through a checklist uh, and make a list of questions that they have. Also, you know, the questions that I ask of my patients is, you know, is anything new medically? You know, I, it's important for me to know what medications they're taking. Family history is important. I want to know what's going on with people socially because what's going on socially, relationships, that'll dictate what testing I'm doing. But I think if a woman really makes a list of concerns she has and a list of things that may have changed during the course of the year, it really facilitates her appointment and also will make things that much more efficient. I want to take a just a little breather here just to remind everybody that conversations like this are sponsored by Fidelity Investments because no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're single or married or divorced, it's vital for all women to be actively engaged in their finances and their investments and their health, by the way, before it becomes a necessity. So know what you own, know what you owe, know what your goals are, and have a financial checkup at least annually. That's what it's called when you're in your financial front seat. And you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Before we get back to our conversation with Dr. Becky Brightman, I have an exciting announcement. Bad With Money, hosted by former Her Money guest Gabby Dunn, is back with Season 3 on Panoply. Each week, Gabby breaks down why money is such an emotional and cultural struggle in America. This season, she's digging into potential solutions for fixing America's broken financial system and providing actions you can personally take to help improve things. You'll be enlightened and motivated by conversations with academics, politicians, activists, and even a presidential candidate. I've been on Gabby's show, too. So listen to Bad With Money for free on your favorite podcast app. We are talking with Dr. Rebecca Brightman, who happens to be my OBGYN. We know, because we've done a little surveying, that our Her Money listeners are a wide array of ages. So I want to make sure everybody gets a little something out of this conversation. Let's run through what are the appropriate OBGYN considerations for each age group. Okay. So if you're in your teens and your 20s, I mean, you mentioned STDs. Right. Are you a fan of the um, HPV that? Absolutely. Absolutely. The management of abnormal PAPs screening for HPV has changed so much during the course of the years that I've been in practice. And with the vaccine, we've really seen a decline in invasive cervical cancers. So absolutely across the board, I really encourage women to get it. And boys too. Boys too. Absolutely. I mean, those commercials with the kids who you see get younger and younger in age and they're asking their parents if they should have known that this vaccine was available, those just kill me Oh, they really do. They really, really do. And I was asking my pediatrician to vaccinate my sons long before it was approved by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I'm so happy that both boys and girls are being vaccinated. Anything else in their 20s? Um, Birth control. Kelly really wants us to get into this discussion of birth control. Kelly's nodding here because I'm giving her away. But there are so many different methods and so many different cost structures now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it depends on a woman's reproductive desires. You know, in my practice, my most of my teenagers do not want to get pregnant. So, And same with my patients in their early 20s, many of whom are, are students. 
Um, so you have to take that into consideration and obviously you know, make sure if they want something like a birth control pill, make sure there aren't any contraindications. They want to be on the pill. That's great. What's really newer over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years um, has been the use of IUDs. Mm -hmm. And again, American Academy of, of Pediatrics, American College of OBGYNs are really recommending IUDs Why? to young women because the thought is that they are not user-dependent. I mean, there's wiggle room. If you forget, you don't have those whoops moments where you may be on vacation or you forgot to take your pill. You don't have to worry about that. And um, the IUDs of yesteryear of many of my younger patients, moms' generations, we have to dispel myths. The IUDs of yesteryear are, have changed. Um, we used to worry about pelvic infection. I think young women are much savvier. I think guys are savvier. They know they need to protect themselves against STDs. They will use condoms. My my patients, you know, for the most part, I think will use condoms. You know, nobody's perfect, but with the, with there's several IUDs on the market, but. Some of them are good for up to five years, which is amazing. You know, an 18-year-old can have it in place until they're 23, um, at which point their reproductive needs can be reassessed. Do, are they covered typically by insurance? They typically are. You know, then again, it depends on which IUDs are covered. It's something they want to talk to their healthcare provider about. Some of my patients actually need to order them from specialty pharmacies, get them sent to the office, and then we insert them. There can be an, an insertion fee, but that will vary from one provider to the next. But I got to imagine that if you amortize the cost, how much is an IUD? It depends. Anywhere from 900 to 1200 depending on how much it is. It's not inexpensive. However, if you amortize it, it's it's less expensive than being on birth control pills. Right. Right. So I think that's the way we right. have to think Absolutely. about those things. All right. Moving on to your 30s where an IUD may still be a consideration, but you're getting into childcare years, exactly, or childbearing years. So, so some women are having wanting to get pregnant in their 20s, some in their 30s. You know, again, we always starting 21, we want to screen for cervical cancer and everything else. But in terms of contraceptive needs, which I think was your question, obviously birth control pills, IUDs. You know, something women typically want something that's reversible. Some women are happy using condoms. Uh, diaphragms have really fallen by the wayside, and that was you know, that they were very popular, you know, twenty plus years ago. But we're not fitting women for diaphragms. They're like messy. They were. They're messy. They, <laughs> I, you know, I think if it were up to the men to use diaphragms, they never would have come on the scene anyway. So, yeah. and women are more empowered to tell guys, you know, hey, you know, if you want to have sex, use a condom. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you have a patient who is pregnant, I mean, the cost of prenatal care can be pretty high. It so can. any strategies for managing that? So I think the most important thing is if a woman plans on getting pregnant, check her benefits. It's really important. I don't think I really thought about this until I grew up um, at some point in my life. Um, but I think it's really, really important for women to know what their health care covers. In-network, out-of-network benefits are important. Most OBGYNs offer their prenatal care as a package which would include, obviously, prenatal care visits, uh, the delivery, postpartum visits, the visits in the hospital. The fee for a C-section may be additional. Most of these fees are covered by standard commercial insurances. The blood work and everything else that's done, the ultrasounds are typically covered by standard commercial insurance. Some providers are out of network, such as myself. If that's the case, and I think this is really important for women across the board to know that they actually will get reimburse a greater amount if they submit everything in one lump sum during uh -huh. one calendar year, because otherwise they're not going to have to meet their deductible twice. Right. And I think it's important for women to know what their deductibles are. 
That makes a ton of sense. In order to maximize the amount of money that they receive back. Yeah, and and in the fall before you think you're going to get pregnant is a really good, not that we can always time these things, but it's a really good time to weigh your benefits package against your spouse's benefits package and make a choice because you may have gone with your own benefits because it was cheaper, but in a year where you're expecting to have a lot of costs, the other plan may just be better. Oh, it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a show coming up on freezing eggs, which I know has been in the news Very much lately so. for some sad re- oh, reasons. Oh, I know. I know. Um, but what are your thoughts on in vitro and, I guess, um, fertility technology and are there ways to manage costs there? Well, there are. And I think that in Granted, you're going to speak to somebody who knows a lot more about this than I do, but there are financing options, and that's the good news for people whose insurance won't cover it. Most commercial insurances will cover some IVF cycles, if not part of IVF cycles, which offsets things to a great extent. It's very interesting in that, obviously, young women like to freeze eggs or they're learning more about their options, and I think it really it's an insurance policy. In my practice, the women who have frozen their eggs then... I joke with them. It's almost like a guarantee that they're now going to go on. And once they've frozen their eggs, they're going to meet somebody. I think it takes a certain burden off of their shoulders. So it's sort of interesting to see that. But to the best of my knowledge, that's not being financed, egg freezing. But IVF cycles and part of the cycles are. So these are big things for women in their 40s. Let's talk a little bit about the women in their 40s. What are the considerations for them that you see most often? In terms of contraception and Or no, and just in terms of, I mean, what are the... What are the big cost issues that start to raise their um, heads in their 40s? So sometimes contraception, but usually not, you know. For those women who want to get pregnant, they want to facilitate getting pregnant, especially if they may maybe want to have more than one child. So obviously they want to not stall. And clearly these are women who are going to want to have health care benefits in case they need to take advantage of, you know, it. Um, assisted reproductive technologies, but also in one's 40s, certain screening tests, as we talked about, you know, annually make sure if they're not covered that they put away money or they can, you know, budget out having a mammogram, having a breast ultrasound if they need to. While doing pelvic ultrasounds is not what we call standard of care for most populations of women, they should talk to their healthcare provider because if it's indicated, obviously that's something that should be budgeted out also if it's not covered. As women age, some of them develop medical problems, and they may need to take certain medications. And again, the coverage may vary. And then they start looking at menopause, and we've got hormonal Absolutely. fluctuations and additional tests, colonoscopies. The colonoscopies, colon cancer screening, which starts at 50 earlier if there's a family history. And again, one wants to make sure that, you know, of insurance coverage. And then with hormones, hormone replacement, which I'm a big fan of for the right patient, There are so many different formulations and ways in which women can receive hormone replacement. Insurance companies really give me a tough time in terms of my prescribing practices, and they really— They don't want to cover it? No, they don't want to cover what—you know, I recommend what I think is going to be in a woman's best interest. And, you know, they really want women to try, on unfortunately, things that are more reasonable and, and less expensive when they may not be the best medical option for these women. Whether or not— And it unnerves me to know it. Yeah, no. Whether or not we are talking about hormonal fluctuations because menopause is coming on or for 
any other reason. I mean, I, I read Lena Dunham's essay in Vogue this month about having a hysterectomy very young because she had incredibly painful endometriosis. I mean, there are a lot of different things that are going on. And one of the annoying is the wrong word because it's 10 times annoying factors is that, you know, all of these things can affect our emotions, our work, our sleep, our productivity. And the world around us sometimes gives us the message that we're crazy. We're not crazy, right? No, 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 we're not crazy. And women have greater peaks and troughs in their hormone levels in their mid to late 40s until they go through menopause, which the average age in this country is is 52. But there's still women in their 50s going through these hormonal fluctuations. And accompanying these fluctuations frequently are obviously mood changes, sleep disturbances. And the thing that's so frustrating is that women are up at night frequently sweating or they just find that they have insomnia. And that impacts mood. It impacts a woman's ability to focus and perform. It it impacts decision-making, you know, whether it is decision-making with respect to finances or their health or in the workplace. And so it's really important that a woman address whatever symptom she's having with her health care provider. Which, again, means having a health care provider that you right, can actually right. talk to. Absolutely. And I have, I have said I, countless times that when it comes to choosing a financial advisor, you have to find a financial advisor that you can be open and honest with just as much as you can with your gynecologist. But I'm sure there are some people who have trouble being open and honest with their gynecologist. There definitely are. There so definitely what do you are. tell them? Well, I want women to know that I'm not judgmental at all, and I really try to convey that. And sometimes if I sense that I may not be getting the full story, I'll ask you know, a probing question or two, in a, in, and I'll state the question in a certain way so as not to offend you know, a patient of mine. It's always tough for me, and I think women need to know that their healthcare providers are not clairvoyant. We can't read their minds, so it's really important for people to make the most of their time and speak up if they really feel that there's something on their mind they want to talk about. There have been situations where I've got test results back, and I've had to call patients and say, you know, I'm concerned about a sexually transmitted infection, or is there anything else going on? Is there you have any new sexual partners or anything you want to speak about? And women are embarrassed. You know, that's just an example. So I, my job is made a lot easier when people are up front from the get-go. And they shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm not judgmental at all. I know that you're not <laughs> judgmental. But if, if somebody feels like their doctor is judgmental, should they find a different doctor? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's without a question. Okay. All right. Well, this is an important conversation. I mean, we've been talking about the intersection between health and finances a lot this year because it's just become so clear that you can't separate them. No, you can't. They're very much intertwined. Yeah. So I appreciate you being here, and I hope we'll do it again and continue it. I would love to. Thanks so much. And Kelly will be in in just a second. Kelly is with me in the studio. So can you talk to your OBGYN the way I can talk to mine? Definitely. He is fabulous. He. He. Okay. And this is funny, and I hope my mom isn't embarrassed by me telling this story, but when I told her that I'm going to pursue maybe having a male gynecologist, she goes, mm, check the size of his hands. Oh, God. She's like, if they're too big, that won't bode well for you. And I'm like, Mom, no. 
His hands are fine. He's fantastic. I feel like I'm out to drinks with a friend. You do. In our sessions. Oh, yeah. He wants to know everything. And he makes me feel really comfortable. Okay. So that's perfect. But I have had moments with him where he is just swamped and he's trying to get in and out of each appointment. And I've had to stop and be like, whoa, like, please slow down. I need to talk to you about this. Like, your quick answers aren't making me feel very secure or confident with how I'm feeling right now. Let's just take it down a notch. But I have that kind of, like, candor with him that Mm -hmm. I can be like, you're moving too fast. Which is not something that I feel like a lot of people do with their financial advisors. Exactly. You know, the lingo starts flying Mm -hmm. or people feel, women especially, we feel as if we should understand what's happening in the dialogue around us, even though we didn't go to school for medicine or we didn't go to school for finance. And so we don't stop and ask our questions. Yep, I know. And I hope today's episode kind of gave women both the confidence to have the same type of transparency with both their gynecologists, their OBGYNs, and their financial advisors. And to understand that if you haven't found that kind of match, Mm -hmm. it's not you. Or it may be you, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That's a really good point because I feel like we just defer to these experts and we don't think outside the box enough of being like, you know, this is just one person. There are multiple of these experts and it just requires a dating process. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Speaking of questions, we've got questions. Our first question is from Erin. When saving for retirement, I have often heard the advice that by certain ages, you should have a certain multiplier of your salary saved specifically for retirement. For example, by 30, you should have one year salary saved and so on. I am in my early 30s, but my annual income is heavily weighted towards bonus, which is about 40 to 50 percent of my base salary. I utilize my bonus primarily to aggressively save, pay down my mortgage or one-off projects, and not towards my living expenses. None of the articles I have read have clarified what to do when a big component of your income relates to your bonus. Should I be utilizing my base salary or my total income when looking at retirement goals compared to income? You should be using both as your total income. Your base salary plus your bonus is your total income and your total compensation. It depends on what sort of salary we're talking about. And I bring that up because of two things. First, I think saving your windfalls, if that proves to be an effective strategy for you, is a fine way to go. And these sorts of benchmarks and the ones that you're referencing were established by Fidelity. Some of them were also, there's another set very similar that was um, developed by Aon Hewitt. These benchmarks are organized by decade simply to give you a large period of time in which to make them work. So I, I wouldn't necessarily worry about age 31 or age 32. You're sort of, you're getting there. It's a process. As far as how much of your income you have to save over time. These recommendations were developed for people who earn between fifty dollars and $300,000 a year. Once you get above and beyond that, the recommendations are a little bit different. And in part, they're different because generally the more you make, the more you should have the ability to save. And the one thing that we don't need to replace when it comes to retirement is our savings rate. As you look at what this money is supposed to come in and replicate, 
it's the cost of housing and the cost of transportation and the cost of food and travel and health care. But the percentage of your income you're saving, you do not have to cover for. So I think knowing that can help you figure this out a little bit better. And through your answer, I just realized it's how she's been looking at her income, whether it be from bonus or her base, and how she's organized it in her mind, and how if we let go of some rules we set for ourselves, you know, it, there are new answers like the one you just said. It, it, to me, it just clicked because I do that same thing too. I like kind of make rules or categorize certain amount of money or my income for certain things, and it it leads me to places like this where I feel like, you know, I'm not saving enough or I should be doing this or Well, that. and it can help us, yeah, right? When, that's true. When you're doing it in a way that you're segregating savings for a big trip, yeah. right? That That's mental accounting. That's yep. a tenant of behavioral finance that has been proven to be really, really successful in helping us meet our goals. Mm-hmm. But it can also, I think, get in our way, whether it's for somebody whose salary is salary big bonus or for somebody who has an un, um, uneven monthly income. In that case, and maybe in this one, you probably want to consider going through some income smoothing mm-hmm. where you take your total last year's income, divide it by 12, and that becomes the monthly nut that uh, you live yeah. on. And if you happen to earn more And by the way, if you do that, then you have to factor savings into the monthly equation. But that enables you to structure your life around your true earnings. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we'll do one from Dawn. She says, I love the show, especially your holistic approach to money because it touches every part of our lives. And I love that she pointed that out because that's how we feel too. Thank you. Here's my question. What can you do with an excellent credit score besides take out more loans or credit? I am newly debt-free for the first time in 21 years, and I don't want to take out a loan or more credit, but I have a score of 815. Is there anything else I is there anything else I can use it for? I think you should print it out and put it on the fridge. I know. Hash- Don't you think? Hashtag I mean- <laughs> humble brag on. That's awesome. No, and I'm I'm kind of not kidding about that. So my friend Diane, when she went back to school, um, she got all A's. She was for, in her 40s at the time, and she went back to get her RD in nutrition. Mm-hmm. And she put her report cards on the fridge right up there with her kids' good Love report it. cards. Love it. Which I think is is great. What else can you do with it? It'll get you a better rate on homeowners insurance and auto insurance. So you should point that out when you go to shop for home and auto insurance. They will check what's called your insurance score, which is very similar to your credit score. It might help you get a job if you're single and you go on a date with somebody who, who wants to know what your credit <laughs> yep. score is. It might help you get a second date, but it might also be intimidating. Lead with, I, I say lead with it, Don. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just when they ask you for more information about yourself, start with this. There you go. I have an 815 credit score. I, I've never said that. So there you go. That's awesome. It's terrific. Okay. And we'll do one more from Susan. It's a quick one. She wants to know, should I pay $80 a year to protect my identity? <sighs> oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, I just assigned one of our writer reporters to dive into this question of Mm -hmm. whether we really do have to pay for identity protection anymore. Because now that you're able to freeze your credit, and I think everybody should freeze their credit, it 
it becomes the the most heinous forms of identity theft become less of a problem because if the credit bureaus will not approve new lines of credit, nobody's going to be able to take out a card in your name with your social security number and try to pin it on you when those loans come due. If being able to monitor on a very, very regular basis makes you feel safer, makes you feel like you've got peace of mind, then I think it's worth paying for. Great. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. And on to our Thrive segment of the week. So let's say you're a woman, because we all are. And let's say you just got married, because some of you did. And let's say you just got promoted as well. Well, you might have doubled your odds of getting divorced. Kelly is shaking her head because we both hate this study, but new research by some Swedish academics have found that women who start out their marriages earning less than their husbands or not working at all are more likely to get divorced if they start climbing the career ladder. This study was conducted over 30 years, and it looked at married couples in both the public and private sectors, and it found a similar pattern. So what is going on here? Well, the researchers point out that a wife's promotion can cause more perceived stress as couples struggle to reallocate tasks at home due to the fact that one has a busier schedule than another. Plus, some women leave relationships when they don't feel that those relationships are offering the flexibility or the stability that they need for their career growth. So as I said, hate this, but we want to hear from you. Have you experienced any of this? Head to jeanchatsky.com slash podcast. Write to us where you leave your questions and let us know if we should build an episode around this research and your experiences. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Dr. Rebecca Brightman for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also, of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios, and we thank them as well. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with Jennifer Dulski, head of groups at Facebook, and author of the upcoming book, Purposeful. We'll talk soon. <laughs>